You're listening to And what is poppin' everybody? It is Thursday, March the 10th, 2022. It is episode 95 of the Good Pop Culture Club. My name is Marvin Yue and joining me to talk about all the good pop kids through our days, we have professional culture editor Han Wen. Hey, Hello. Hi. It's just me and you today because um, our third, um, the self-proclaimed professional Asian American just Jew, has been struck down by COVID after being so careful for two and a half years. <sighs> I mean, this is why it's very insidious when they talk about like the strains um, and how like there was that spike it's because it was resistant to all the things that we're doing but the nice i guess the good thing is that you know she's triple jabbed so she 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 can fight it off she is recovering at home and hopefully we'll have her back next week because we're going to be talking about probably turning red yes and we need her because she is melee the main yeah (laughs) basically (laughs) (laughs) but um han and i are going to hold it down this week um with a, I mean, it's not going to be a shorter episode. We are talking about a pretty hefty movie. Um, this week's um, film is a three-hour affair. Not that one. Not the one you're thinking of. We watched the not-Batman <laughs> three-hour movie called Drive My Car um, that's playing on HBO Max right now. It is a Japanese film that has a ton of Oscar and awards buzz coming into um, the award season. So um, we were excited to sit down to see what it was all about. All right. Well, before we get to that, let's find out what pop culture has been getting us through this week. And, you know, since it's just the two of us, I feel like there's only one thing that we want to talk about because it is finally Top Chef season once again. And it's the most go Asian (laughs) Top Chef season that we've ever had with five Asian chefs taking part in this year's competition. It went there. It went Asian. That's where it's how Goatian it is. <laughs> Top Chef season 19 just premiered last week. Um, this season, the cooking competition is taking place in Houston, Texas, which is Han's hometown. Yeah, H-Town, Space City. Uh, <laughs> there are many things that I think they ha- have acknowledged that I am also proud of being raised there as far as it being super multicultural. Um, the past two years have been different for texas so uh i i am very curious to see what they address on (laughs) on the show it is an interesting i'm sure they chose houston before texas went real red i mean or not like they were deliberate when they chose portland for their their thing because they you know that was like the height of a lot of black lives matter um, protests and things like that. And so they wanted to highlight, you know, some of the stuff there. So I think they wanted to maybe expose some of the diversity in Houston and the, and the underserved people that you don't think about. Because I, I know as much as I don't want to move back to Texas right now, <laughs> um, that all my family is still there, you know. And so I think it's maybe putting a face on the people in, in Texas that most people don't think of. That's true. I mean, Houston has been named the most diverse city in the United States uh, Mm -hmm. multiple times by many different outlets. And, you know, um, as conservative as Texas politics goes, the urban centers are pretty progressive, I think. Um, But, you know, there are definitely still pockets because like Houston, I would love to say is completely blue, but it is very purple. (laughs) And um, and it's 
probably because of the diversity, but also because of the elders, you know, uh, you know, this is always the, the struggle. It's not just being, you know, an immigrant in America and sort of battling, you know, butting heads with the older generation, but also specifically very much so with the Vietnamese population, um, where uh, they tend to almost always skew very conservative because that is the anti-communist. I mean, refugee politics in general, right. it's the not communist that usually gets pushed exactly, out of the Exactly, exactly, exactly. So, you know, like, that's why there's been so much discussion of who's really a socialist and, you know, all, all the... Like the if you want healthcare, that's socialist, you know, and so it's kind of like painting things in such a way that people are not going to want it because they think it's like one step away from communism. So um, yeah, it's it's interesting that it seems like uh, authoritarianism is totalitarianism <laughs> is okay instead. Um, but yeah, yeah. But... so there's bitterness and there's there's <laughs> there's there's some bittersweet you know like things with my family for sure. <laughs> but yeah, Houston. With all that said, Houston is a good choice as a food city because mm-hmm. it is so diverse. There's a lot of different cuisines going around it. You know, there's Mexican food, Vietnamese food, um, barbecue. Indian. Um, definitely, I grew up, there was, there's Vietcasian. There's, uh, <laughs> there is various African ones. And I think maybe not so much in Houston, but I'm sure that there's a Germanic influence in Texas. Yeah. So I don't know if it's quite reached there. Um, there's also... Yeah, there's still Cajun um, and Southern food. Uh, but yeah, it's just it's just, it's a really big mismatch of stuff. Um, last year's cast was also very diverse. Like, I think for the second season in a row, I think there's only, what, two or three white people in the entire cast. Yeah. And, you know, that feels, yeah, that feels real to me because when I was going to high school, it was like majority I felt like, well, I mean, sure, there were a lot of white people, but it's like. We had a lot, a huge population of black and a huge population of Asian. So like my best friend in Houston growing up was, is, was, is Korean. And, you know, lots. So we all, everybody in Houston knew how to spell and pronounce win or at least some version. Of it, you know? um, so and it's. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Something I, I like to point out is when it comes to the um, the languages spoken in Houston, um, you can just look at the the digital parking meters number one is english number two is spanish and number three is vietnamese wow that is impressive yeah and like we mentioned there are five asian chef testants in this season uh, which i think is the most we've had in any season usually we get like two at most well like i think three is kind of like an embarrassment of riches usually (laughs) so yeah this is kind of like wait are they trolling us like what's going on yeah um you know it's still early in the season there's still way too many chefs for us to really kind of pick up um our favorites so far but you know um in the go asian roster we have Buddha Lowe, who is the Australian chef who I believe works in um, New York, who made the bold move of making spotted dick for his um, yes. <laughs> immunity-backed elimination With, challenge dish, though. But still, but not not that's not even it because spotted dick is is a, a very well-known dessert in England. He made it with beef. That's yeah. what made it odd. <laughs> um, yeah, who else? Who else do you? Have? <laughs> uh, we also have um, Joe Chan, who I believe Austin. is. Austin based. Yes. Um, Monique Faye Bess, who is, I believe, Filipina uh, from the Bay Area, from Vallejo. Jay Jung, who is a um, Korean chef from New York. And Sam Kang, who is um, born and raised in Gardena, California, and then 
I think he works in New York now, too. Yeah, I think it's very interesting that there's not a Viet person, but maybe because there's going to be a Viet challenge, <laughs> um, which would be kind of fun and I can get outraged. But, um, you know, I, I again, if I'm going to give Top Chef some credit, I would not be surprised if they deliberately tried to choose many Asians because of the last year of what's been going on. So, you know. That's true. Also, yeah. the last season of they need some redemption in terms of like, <laughs> um, can can I? Oh my god, can I just say? So I recorded this on my DVR because I'm old school that way. But before it aired, then it had the last few seconds of the previous season's finale, and of course, I got to relive that tragedy again. <laughs> Whew. I know it's so. Um, so for people who did not catch up or who aren't up to date, um, the winner of last year's Top Chef. Um, was a guy Gabriel. who yeah. ended up um, being accused of inappropriate behavior uh, at at work and yeah be- yeah and yeah that um, put a damper on last year because the other two runner-ups were all also equally good and I would have rather either one of them win um, one they actually brought back one of last year's um, finalist Don in this first challenge for the quick fire right. Yeah, and it's because she's also Houston-based. Um, mm-hmm. So it, I think it was a nice tribute. I did miss Shota's laugh. I, I think Sam, um, uh, the Korean guy, has some Shota energy. Um, but Yeah, and well, they're not the same, obviously. Mm-hmm. But uh, when I did look at him, I was like, are you like a mini Daniel Day Kim-ish kind of? <laughs> I was just like, the cheekbones are great, but also he has this kind of like perm. I, no, I don't want to call it a perm. He just probably has naturally wavy hair. It's just like, Sandra O oh does, um, but it's so cute. <laughs> so I, I I am enjoying him even in this one episode we've got received so far. Yeah, and so um, I guess we can't talk about this first episode of Top Chef without talking about the elimination challenge and the um, let's say throwback to the days when chefs would hear Asian and go, "I don't do Asian." Yeah, <laughs> I mean, look, I I I get in so on on one hand. While I agree that just thinking you know any other cuisine without actually having, you know, studied it and done some, uh, like an amount of cooking, you know, in it, I I at least like that someone will acknowledge that they are not an expert in Vietnamese cuisine, (laughs) unlike some previous contestants have have stated. Um, But at the same time, how do you not know at least one Asian sort of general... Uh, flavor she knows profile. that bok choy is an Asian vegetable. Well, then you know what? Then bok choy. Then you should know how to cook bok choy. So, like, <laughs> if you have like what oyster sauce or whatever it is you want to do with it. But like, yeah, it, it seemed a it, little. It was a little wild that um, in our year 2022, season 19 of Top Chef, we had someone who like. It was just, it's been a while since I've seen a chef turn their nose up at Asian cuisines. I, I, I was almost a little disappointed. I mean, we had two. So it, on the bottom <laughs> for this episode, we had two people who kind of committed like sins against crimes Asians. Against Asian, you know, yeah. Crimes Asian against cuisine, Asian. yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the chefs, Leia, her crime. I feel it's crime seems extreme. Her mistake, I guess, her or her, um, her, her issue yeah, yeah, was her. like kind of. Using Asian as kind of like a catch-all, sort of yeah. like there. Whereas, like it's funny because at the very beginning, I mean, I I feel like she thinks she's some expert in Asian uh, in Asian flavors because she she kept saying like 
in the quick fire, she was saying like, oh, I'm going to set up my team and like create this. And they're going to figure out that it's Vietnamese and like Vietnamese is known in Houston. And I was just like, but how do you know anyone else knows Vietnamese flavors? Right. Um, and so but then in in this whatever elimination challenge, it was the same thing. It's like they said that all of the all of them would, would have an Asian theme, but they weren't even talking about which Asian, you know. And so that one just kind of pissed me off. I was like, so hers was like a spring roll. And I was just like, oh, it it, it was so very not good Asian. It was in basic. Any way. It was very basic. And I think that's, mm, yeah. I've talked a lot about the progression of like how the competition works. And like, you know, the first, the first few episodes all about like, usually it's technical. It's you're, yeah. you're separating the people who can't execute technically. Um, but yeah. I think this, in this challenge, every, all three people on the bottom had like conceptual issues, right? Um, yeah. Jay, yeah. the Korean lady, um, had an idea for a beef dish that didn't highlight the beef, which was her, yeah. her main issue. Um, and then Sarah, the chef from North Dakota, was just kind of, she was the one that was like, I don't really do Asian, so I'm going to put bok choy on this steak and potatoes dish. Yeah, And, and then and, she forgets the bok choy. Yeah, I, I think also they were just a bad team as far as working together cohesively because she could have just been like, so I have bok choy. What do you think are other flavors that you think might help it? Whatever. They could have helped conceptualize things all across the board to at least make it seem right <laughs> like even if she did bok choy with like gochujang you know it maybe it would have been that would have been something where it'd been like korean korean yeah you know? um and i mean if it sounds like we're being harsh on it it's because han and i being asian we're extra sensitive when people fuck up an asian concept yeah i i i am not a purist like it doesn't have to be exactly you know pho done like the old-fashioned way for me to respect it i don't mind riffs I don't mind, especially on Top Chef, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I think in order, this is the same thing when it comes to language, is you actually have to know the base rules of language well in order to break the rules correctly in order to do poetry or jokes or whatever. Um, if you don't get the base rules right, then it makes no sense when you make a pun, right? <laughs> so, so the same thing with food. It's like if you don't actually understand the cuisine, you can't riff on it. And I think that was unfortunately a little bit part of jay's issue um because she did a tribute to north korean um cuisine yeah that she had not, yeah i think so. it's you know it's a combination of some people trying to be a little clever some people trying something new and i just feel like at this point in the life of top chef if you know you're gonna go to houston a strategic move would be to study what cuisines are like present in that city and work on a couple work on some recipes or work on some you know i feel like i don't know not that every chef needs to be a global like generalist right. but they knew they were going there yeah and so <laughs> yeah they the like besides like maybe barbecue they should have looked up certain like cajun flavors specifically which asian one that that's their choice but and then also tex-mex like yeah you know and like if <laughs> this is like backseat top shipping now but if yeah. you if you want to do steak and potatoes mm -hmm. you know what's a great way to incorporate asian flavors some sort of sauce some sort of glaze mm -hmm. on that steak to make it like you know anything uh, yeah i mean honestly like a stew would have been better you know yeah um just i don't know <laughs> anyway yeah it's i think it's always gonna be frustrating when people kind this of, is what uh, those first few uh episodes are about it's like Cutting the chaff, like getting all these people out, hopefully. 
Um, but, she's going to have to show another side of herself if she has to, if she's going to laugh. Uh, I mean, she's already on kind of my like bottom list for even just being like, oh, I don't, I don't do yeah. Asian. But um, yeah, this first episode, um, Leia, the chef from New Jersey who made the um, the spring roll, the the mediocre spring roll, got sent home. Uh, steak and potatoes lady Sarah, who forgot her bok choy, survived because at least the steak was cooked. Good. I think she lucked out in the fact that the other two dishes just tasted yeah. bad. Yeah. It tasted bad and also didn't showcase the steak as much. Yeah, which, you know, again, early on, Mm -hmm. bad execution, bigger sin than bad concept. Right, 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 right. Like, in the very least, the brief says this is about beef. Yeah, (laughs) but the winner was a guy, um, his name is Robert Hernandez. He is a private chef, I think, up in the Bay Area, um, originally from Downey, um, who is your classic Top Chef Arch type of person who... Is really good, but with low self esteem. Right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think this is where it comes in. Where if you know food really well, you're going to be hard on yourself because if you're an artiste, you know you know all the places you can mess up. So not only was did he do all these complicated steps for just the beef alone, but then also he was making a gnocchi, and that's like tough to get the textures right, especially with the timing. Um, but yeah, it well, it his his uh, agonizing over it worked. Yeah, and I I'm looking forward to his. You know, he's the type of chef who can really, if he keeps building up his self esteem, can really go far. Like, um, there's been a history of personal chefs who, you know, their story is kind of similar. They come in, they see all these accomplished restaurant chefs executive chefs as their competition um but as they get uh more confident in their cooking like they really they really excel he can also very easily let the pressure crush him (laughs) and and get eliminated but i do like that he was able to overcome his nerves and win the first challenge i think it's a good sign yeah and he and evelyn um are both which i thought was really interesting they're both salvadorian and mexican so if they team up for something that would be very you know very interesting and also, Evelyn is the um, the Houstonian in the group. Yeah, I'm surprised there aren't more Houston chefs on this roster. Yeah, I I I, I admit I really wanted a Vietnamese chef in there, um, or at least that some seems other like Asian. a missed opportunity. But yeah, that's why I think that they're just gonna have to have a Vietnamese challenge, and hopefully they don't have, let's say, Eddie uh, <laughs> coming in <laughs> talking about Vietnamese food as they did. Several seasons ago, which I was just like, why? Like, I'm sure he knows some Vietnamese food, but I was like, you could just get a Vietnamese chef. There are definitely some locals that they can, like, call in. Uh, yeah. So I guess, Han, what do you think about the season so far? Uh, I'm pretty excited. Uh, clearly, we haven't, like, gotten out into the city um, yet. It's been fairly contained. And, like, they got the most cliche thing out of the way, which was beef. Um, so I'm glad about that because... Uh, then then we can start digging into all the other little things. And, and you know, I'm excited to actually maybe see some stuff I don't know, because, of course, every time I go home to Houston, I kind of hit like uh, the greatest hits for myself <laughs> um, when it comes to food. So I have to eat certain Vietnamese foods because it tastes different in Houston than it does in L.A. And then um, I always have to have crawfish with my family because that's a, that's a very family meal thing to do. Um, and usually I'll get some sort of Tex-Mex or other like sort of. Uh, mainstreamy thing with my cousins, so I, it doesn't actually provide me a lot of opportunity to uh, experiment and try new places. So, like, there's so so many cool places that like I've heard about through podcasts, and I was like, <laughs> oh, maybe I need to just like get an extra day or two in Houston and just eat there. So, um, yeah, maybe I'll learn some stuff. Yeah, I think I'm I'm looking forward to the season as well. 
Um, again, like we mentioned last season, ended kind of on a on a wet fart because of, you know <laughs> who won and what happened after they won. Um, justice for Soda always, but mm-hmm. I, I'm excited about this new cast. Um, again, it doesn't seem like there are any assholes. Which is good. I like this new direction that we're taking. You, you never know. Um, you know, there's they vetted of- everyone. I'm sure <laughs> <laughs> they better. Um, I love the fact that we have five Asians and we still have five Asians. So you know, we're five for five so far. Um, I agree. <sighs> I mean, you know, look, last season I think we were trying to still do an all Asian finale in one of the seasons, <laughs> but we haven't done it yet. But we have a pretty good chance this time. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think you know. <laughs> They seem pretty strong, but also mm-hmm. everyone else seems pretty strong too. So it's, you know, yeah. it's everyone's game, really. But I'm yeah. excited that Top Chef is back. I'm excited that our weekly check-ins are back as well. You know, it's always cool just to watch reality competitions in real time. And for me, this is, you know, Top Chef is our uh, our football season, I guess. <laughs> kind of for me it is. I mean, back in the day, I used to say something like the spelling bee was because so, that was on ESPN. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I also, you know what? Because there was a lot of tarnishing with the Olympics, I do feel like it was there, because of the global things going on. Like that also made it extra um, I know. hard. So yeah, I, I feel hoping that this this season um, can be something I feel can feel good about. I feel like next uh, season we should like start with like a fantasy pool or something. <laughs> We just pick. Well, pick if you, picks. as long as, yeah, as long as you tell me how to do it, sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, that's what's popping for this week. We'll probably check back again on the mm-hmm. status of our Asians on Top Chef um, next week. But uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're talking about the award nominated film, um, Drive My Car. Life gets a little crazy sometimes. Sometimes it's confusing, sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's beautiful, and sometimes it can just piss us off. Enter First of All Podcast. It's a safe space for real conversations about the things that we all struggle with, celebrate, contemplate, and work through in our daily lives. I'm your host, Mindy Chang. I'm an actor, filmmaker, and entrepreneur with a colorful background, a full life, and brilliant friends who I love to unpack life with to share with all of you. They are everyday people like you and me, ranging from award-winning artists, cultural icons, powerful CEOs, my hilarious childhood friends, and even my mom. Tune in for honest conversations on mental health, dating, sex, family, career, culture, and everything in between. Listen to First of All wherever you find podcasts, part of the Potluck Podcast Collective. And welcome back to the Good Pop Culture Club. On this episode, we're talking about Drive My Car, the 2021 um, Japanese drama film, um, co-written and directed by Ryusuke Hamaguchi, um, based on a short story uh, by Haruki Murakami. It premiered at the 2021 Cannes Film Festival, where it also won three awards, including Best Screenplay. It's up for four Academy Awards, um, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best International Feature Film, and Best Adapted Screenplay. And it also won the Best Foreign Language Film at this year's Golden Globe Awards. So um, lots of, it seems to be gathering a lot of momentum. So so yeah, we were excited to um, check out this film and see what all the buzz is about. The film follows uh, Yusuke Kafku, who is an actor, um, stage director, and recent widower who travels to Hiroshima for a 
director's um, residency, where he is putting together a multilingual production of Anton Chekhov's play Uncle Vanya. Uh, while there, he is assigned a chauffeur um, named Misaki, who is responsible for driving him to and from the hotel and the theater. And throughout the story, um, the two bond through sharing about their past, I guess, traumas and grief as he tries to work through um, the grief of his wife's passing. Uh, as he tries to work through the grief of his wife's passing two years earlier, um, it's hard to explain, right? <laughs> yeah, no, no. It's, I mean, I guess we should say up front that um, while certain spoilers are things we are going to avoid, it is also sort of a, a thematic movie. So sometimes talking about plot doesn't always serve. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty much the setup. He is Hiroshima. He's directing this play. He's not over the death of his wife. And through conversations with his cast members and his chauffeur, um, they work through it. And, you know, um, it's hard to explain because, like Han said, it is a very thematic. Like, I'm curious, Han, because I came into this film not knowing a lot about it besides the fact that it's about someone driving someone's car. Right? <laughs> yes, yes. So I didn't know there was this, like, theatrical aspect to it. And this is where I wish Jess was here to mm. chat with us because she is a former theater professional and you know i'm sure she could explain to us like the significance of beckett and Chekhov's and their plays and their relationship to this film because Chekhov's play is the framing for this film um i don't have that, that capability so um uh, apologies for that but um <laughs> coming in knowing that this is the film that's getting a lot of oscar buzz i was actually surprised to see how low-key this film was, right? Because you know, if you look at um, previous foreign language um, films and series that have been getting a lot of buzz, they've been a lot more bombastic, right? Parasite was like a punch-the-gut mm -hmm. shows mm -hmm. like Squid Game was high-octane. And this is a deliberately paced character study. And even though this film was three hours long, I actually didn't think it dragged at all. Um, because like, mm. the character interactions were just so... I mean, they were low-key, but they were very riveting. Yeah. I... I it it's one of those things where I really hope everyone checks it out because our our words are probably not selling it as much. <laughs> but um but yeah, I, I think it's riveting because it's a movie that's so very much about language and it is deliberate about like how every conversation goes. Even if you think it's kind of like meandering, no, it's not. And so every word like has weight and you're always wondering like, what do they mean by that? Or how is this other person like understanding what the one person even just said? <laughs> so it's kind of like super layered. And um, that's actually kind of where this multilingual um, Uncle Vanya production comes in, which is fascinating because I would watch that. That seems like I very interesting. Totally would. So, like, just to kind of like outline a little bit of what you're expecting is you get, you know, well, we'll go back to the um, waiting for Godot, which is obviously just uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, but they each of the actors is speaking a foreign language from each other. So, what you see on the screen as a moviegoer, but then also as a theater audience member is they have a screen above for surtitles kind of like what they have for um uh operettas you know so you understand what people are singing and so they are doing the translations for both i guess it's what was it russian or something <laughs> or, um, yeah I, I, whatever the other guy was and some then, sort of european language and then sorry we're probably <laughs> 
mismatching it. But yeah, um, and then Japanese. And then so, but they're each speaking to each other as if they understand each other. And so in the performance of that, you kind of start to get a rhythm and hopefully you are sort of understanding them too, even though you're secretly reading things. Um, yeah. And much of the film follows um, Yusuke as he directs this new production of Uncle Vanya. And you kind of see his process and how at first the actors are like, what the hell? Why are we just reading? But then later on, you see how it all comes together. I mean, there's a really great scene in the second hour, I think, where you have um, the Taiwanese actress with the um, mute Korean actress who communicates through sign language doing a scene um, that was just super compelling acting, I thought. Yeah, it's it's funny when you have actors playing actors, right? <laughs> Um, because then they have to perform it in such a way that you also know it's great. <laughs> so it's like, what the hell? That's just like some amazing acting right there. Um, yeah, it, it was fascinating because he is also, um, as a director, uh, he doesn't keep things static. You know, um, the camera is constantly moving. You see the backs of people's heads um, while they're talking. We see people in the mirrors um, talking and things like that. So it's like, there's never just a, uh, like a play you you are not the fourth wall um so he's constantly like playing with angles and images and stuff like that so yeah such a I, beautiful movie to look at too oh right? yeah <laughs> yeah and i think that was a nice tribute to um hiroshima to play that up because like while clearly when if we're talking about grief and tragedy and trauma you know we know that that's not a mistake for them to uh, set this there um and they deliberately do have um yusuke asked for a um an hour-long tri- uh what was it commute to this to the uh to the what do they call it auditorium the theater, yeah. the theater anyway so they give them this gorgeous like seaside you know hotel <laughs> where well i mean the hotel is fine but it's just the scene like the view is amazing so um yeah yeah i mean it serves two purposes right it serves the purpose of like showing off these beautiful shots of hiroshima but also you know thematically or character wise mm-hmm. um it's because so the main character yusuke is someone who is kind of stuck in the past and stuck in regret like he hasn't moved on he's like so okay we need to talk about the 40 minute prelude <laughs> for this film right when you this know film like on takes a, 40 yeah. minutes to get to the opening credits Let's just put it that yeah way. It, it, the, the cold open ends up being kind of lukewarm by the time you get to the credits <laughs> um but it's still great it's yeah. still great very compelling um but yeah, it's it's a bold move because you're just jumping right into the action. And then after a yeah. while, once you get to the credits, you're like, oh, wait, we haven't seen the credits yet. You're right. <laughs> that 40-minute cold open is basically telling us, okay, Yusuke had a wife that he loved very much. They would have sex and create stories. They would have sex and do a Fresh Creatives. Which Fresh Creatives is my old podcast <laughs> where we just make up stories off the fly without the sex part, though. But then the wife is also supposedly constantly cheating on, not cheating, it's it's very muffled. She has extramarital relations with other younger men that the husband knows about, but is afraid to confront her about. Um, and then one night she dies of a brain hemorrhage. And so... Cue credits. Yeah, cue opening <laughs> credits. Um, and then, you know, after his wife dies, Yusuke 
finds out that he can't act anymore because his acting, the way he acts is to kind of disappear into his character mm-hmm. and like invoke their emotions. And he's afraid if he does that, he won't be able to come back out again. Right. He'll, he'll like disappear into the, the pain that he holds, the regret that he holds. Um, and, and then, yeah. And then cue opening credits. Yeah. I mean, besides the fact that uncle Vanya is the, it's a pretty rough, you know, play. So, <laughs> Uh, Also, Yusuke mm -hmm. loves his car. He has this really awesome, like, Saab, like, turbo. Red Saab. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, you notice that it's it's like the steering was on the left side, like a Western car, even though he's in Japan. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's symbolism in that car. All I can talk about is, man, that car looks pretty cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I I don't know since I hadn't read this short story, but I heard that it was a yellow car, a yellow Saab. So I'm not quite sure. I mean, red, I, of course, pops on the screen. So good the important on them. thing that it's a Saab. Yeah, it's a Saab. Exactly. Which is a fancy European car. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and so exactly like it's a left hand drive, which I was just like watching it. I was like, what's going on here? <laughs> I was like, is this new? Like, <laughs> yeah. So I, I did so do some research on the Murakami short stories that this film is based on. It There's actually three stories mixed into it. One of them is Shirherazad, which is basically the story of. Um, that's actually the, what the first 40 minutes is, is a, a woman mm-hmm. weaves like a multi-part tale as during sex. And then like he never hears the last part. But yeah, the main story, Drive My Car, the short story itself it takes place entirely in the car. And it's a conversation mm-hmm. between a retired actor widower and his chauffeur. And it's interesting because that whole short story is actually in the film. It's the last act of the film. Mm-hmm. The last act of the film is the actual short story, Drive My Car. Yeah, And so um, the movie itself kind of expands it by adding in um, aspects of other Murakami stories, which coming in, I was a little bit like, I don't know about your experience with Murakami. I've only read, read one Murakami book, which is um, Kafka by the Shore, which is, you know, Murakami is an author. He's a prolific novelist, right? He's written like a ton of novels um, that's been translated everywhere. And his thing is kind of being like meta, right? He <laughs> talks about metaphysical things. His stories often involve things like different dimensions or like demons and stars a cat and you know <laughs> it's you know, he gets very weird so i was half expecting this film to get weird which it never does it kind of plays it straight right yeah i mean here's the thing i think you can watch the movie on two different levels and say this is all very grounded in reality all of these things can happen there are no sudden ghosts there are no <laughs> um animals that just talk or anything that like that happens there it's but at the same time, if you also like listen to these people telling stories about other people telling stories or whatever, then you you can see perhaps like, let's say, what is this dark side about his wife that they've been talking about? And then what is the story that she was telling? Was it actually her or, or and then what is this other this other mother figure? I don't want to give too much away and that personality. And so it's like, what if all of those things were a spirit or another, you know, something else that was going on that uh, we are not acknowledging um, because there this is a this is a movie and probably similar to the short story where there's a lot of coincidences going on. <laughs> so you could see it as just normal life or it could be a faded thing that all these things are related somehow, um, which could you could say might be metaphysical. I don't know. Um and how well that the Uncle Vanya uh, play kind of weaves together also. Uh, yeah, there's 
it's well done. <laughs> so well yeah. Done. Again, I'm not familiar with Uncle Vanya or Waiting for Godot, but I I've I've read a ton of think pieces in the um, two hours between watching this movie and talking about <laughs> it right now, and I read something about how you know those two plays also thematically make sense because Waiting for Godot is about reflecting on the past but like not having resolution, and then um, Uncle Vanya I guess it's about looking to the future, right? Or the themes of it are. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I'm not super familiar as familiar <laughs> with Uncle Vanya. Like, I do know Waiting for Godot better because, like, I, as you were saying when they were talking about the past, but it's also about them literally just waiting for and talking about someone who's not present. So it's kind of like, what is this? What is this about? It's a it's a sort of um, existential sort of, you know, play where it's like, what is actually going on? And are they even talking about the truth? So language is a big deal. <laughs> there and and so i think when it comes to uh uncle vanya like i i don't think you need to know it that's the good thing about <laughs> it you don't need to know anything about this play but once they start unrolling and like the the rehearsals and all this other stuff and you see who's cast for what and um how they slowly improve um in each of their roles and then start relating to each other in their roles it's you kind of get a feeling and i think this is what Someone was sort of saying in the movie, it's like, yes, they're all speaking different languages, but eventually they start understanding each other. And that's kind of like what we're doing with Uncle Vanya. It's kind of like, we don't need to know the plot. Um, <laughs> but yeah. eventually, yeah, you you kind of get the vibes of what's going on. I guess, yeah. And then so going back to way back to the beginning of this conversation, where we're talking mm-hmm. about that one hour drive between um, <laughs> Yusuke's uh, hotel mm-hmm. and the theater is he likes to go over lines and he does so by playing a cassette tape that his wife made for him that is specifically timed to his own cadence and it creates all these interesting scenes where he is in conversation with his wife speaking the lines of uncle vanya and because of the thematic i guess overlap it sounds like he's also kind of working through his shit Mm -hmm. right as he does yeah i mean it's it's already fucked up enough to be running lines with your dead wife, right? <laughs> um, in absentia. So, um, yeah. but then also the chauffeur is there listening. So it's kind of like it's it, there's also, but she also pretends she's invisible most of the time. Um, like she's just a driver. She 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 would almost in some ways prefer that she was just like a robot driver, you know, in a way like don't treat me like a person. I um, really like Misaki. I thought. Oh she my was... god, she's so great. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, um, she it's, has a cool she, scar on her cheek. Not that yeah. scars are cool, and that scar has a traumatic backstory that you get into. But um, she's just like a really cool character, and the fact that she's like portrayed as a badass driver, but she's badass at being competent at driving. Yeah, right. She she's her own person, and she sort of like draws you know very definite lines about like what she wants to do and what she wants out of her life. And so for you know, whenever someone's trying to get chummier, she's like, I'm your driver. I'm, you know, like, this is what my, like, I'm just going to wear this little flat cap, you know, <laughs> like, again, very cool. Um, and just do the thing. Like, I, she has no issues with getting up early because that's part of the job. Um, yeah, she's a very interesting character. Um, and one who seems to have maybe in a certain way found peace with her own uh, backstory. Because, of course, everyone has some sort of, like, trauma or loss or something that yeah. they have to deal with speaking of cool characters lee yuna the um the korean actress who plays mm-hmm. sonia and uncle vanya who is um <laughs> mute right she communicates with korean sign language 
I thought that was such an interesting, like, you already have all of these different languages, like, portray, like, you know, you have Chinese, Korean. I, I want to say Tagalog, but I'm not sure. I, I'm also so bad about this because <laughs> I was like, if, if one of them is like, obviously, I understood, like, I could recognize Japanese, Korean. Yeah. Um, and then uh, English. Yeah. <laughs> like the English. Um, but to have like someone communicate in, like you mentioned, like um, the way that this multilingual play is set up is people speak in their, in their language and they act as if they understand each other like natively. And to have one of the characters be someone who communicates in sign language. And when that character first comes in for the audition, I mean, again, this is a... <laughs> This is a film with like every other scene is like a showcase in like acting, right? Yeah, that was such a great scene because I mean, you also again you have to buy the fact that this actress like basically blew him blew him away in order to land this job because I mean, obviously it's kind of cool to have some sort of some sign language as, as part of the the language um multilingual play going on because it is also it's a language fully a language but it's also a silent one or pretty much silent um and so for the language to be visual only <laughs> yeah it's fascinating um great job great job <laughs> <laughs> like, like you're making us work way too hard it's already we already have to read the subtitles while looking at your expressions now we have to read the subtitles while looking at your expressions and your hands at the same yeah. time <laughs> and, and and i would love i wish i knew someone who knew korean sign language because of course you know most of the time when we think of sign language it's asl right mm-hmm. but um like, you know, there is a British sign language and there's a sign language in most languages, right? Or they figure it out. And so a lot of her signs are things that I was like, this doesn't seem familiar to me. Like, it's not that, like I know sign language really well, like ASL very well, but like you start to kind of recognize certain signs, right? Um, and this one, I was just like, I don't know what this any of this means. <laughs> and so there's a kind of a beauty because, of course, since it's sign, sometimes it is uh, representative of what it, they're actually describing, you know, the language. Yeah. So, um, and other times it's just a, a fluid movement that you're just kind of waiting to see what it means. Um, so yeah, that, that was fascinating. As yeah. I, I was saying is as someone who just loves language in general, this was like all up my alley. <laughs> and there's just, there's just something cool about a multilingual production centered in like Japan, yeah. right? Where Japanese is the, main language english mm-hmm. is a secondary language yeah yeah well it was funny because sometimes so the subtitles would come on by the way fyi if anyone wants to watch this on hbo max if your subtitles sort of punk out by the um after that cold open um try watching it on like one of your devices that like i had to switch from my roku to my apple tv in order to get my subtitles back so just just a tip. Anyway, um, but yeah, uh, it, because Japanese is the default language, because this is the director and this is where it's set, um, when the subtitles come on, it's just direct English translation. But when it's another language being translated, it's in parentheses. So <laughs> it's, it's kind of like at first I was like, why is everything in parentheses? And I was listening. I was like, oh, it's this is a different language. You know, um, so that was really fun. <laughs> it is hard to tell, especially when it's like during that first scene, it's like, oh, is this, is this German now? Is this 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's German. And also, well, and I guess the exception would be the Korean sign language doesn't have parentheses around it. Yeah. It just has a direct English translation from what I saw. Um, yeah. It, yeah. It's, uh, it's just um, this. I can see why this film is so um, has all the buzz, right? Because it is a showcase in filmmaking and acting. And like I mentioned before, it is a three hour film, but it, I don't think it ever really dragged, at least for me. And, no, you know, no. th- I think that's also why I kind of wish Jess was here to talk about it. Cause like, <laughs> if there's any person who would feel the drag, it would be Jess. And I'm really curious to see what, like, you know, my friends who maybe aren't as tolerable of like more kind of deliberate mm-hmm. character pieces think about this, right? Because I'm sure there are all tons of people watching this right now because it's on HBO Max and because it has, has Oscar buzz. Yeah. It's it, it was on my because I was curious about where HBO Max placed it on my homepage. Mm. I, I decided not to search for it in the search bar. I was just like, let's see if it's on the homepage. So I went to what's recently added and I saw things like Winning Time, you know, that Lakers show <laughs> and some others. And it took me to about like the fifth or sixth thing. I had to, to search it. for it. I couldn't I couldn't find it by browsing. Oh, well, that sucks. Yeah. yeah. But I, I, I don't know if it's also like I don't know what HBO Max algorithm is if it, they have one. Um, I mean, I'm sure if it does win one or two awards at the Academy Awards, it'll be up there in the top banner. Yeah. Like, so, I mean, I found it pre- pretty easily. It wasn't, though, in the very front. I had to scroll at least to five or six <laughs> or seven, you know, to get it. But anyway, yeah, um, I'm going to I'm going to tell my friend who is Korean to watch it, uh, <laughs> which I think she will get she will be tickled by. But I will also warn her that she needs to pay attention to it. <laughs> Yeah, and you know the film does go into some dark places, right? The themes mm-hmm. are pretty dark because you're dealing with death, you're dealing with guilt, you're dealing with, um, like trauma. Yeah, um, there's it's sex, and it's also sort of like the dark side of yourself, and just there's a lot going on here. Like you could, pro- we could probably even spoilery still like come up empty in whatever conclusions we had. Yeah. <laughs> I had a question. So, yes. um, obviously, it's an adaptation. So, yes. um, it's not full on because Murakami does have a um, bad habit of writing very shallow female characters. Um, mm. But I felt like um, the adaptive screenplay did flesh out. I mean, I mean, um, I don't think either of the characters, so the the dead wife or Misaki, um, I don't think either of them are shallow. However, I think there is a certain amount of mystery. That was written about around them in order to make them. Um, it's fine if you don't know too much, especially about the dead wife, mm. um, because as it's like the whole theme is about knowing knowing another person and knowing yourself, um, and how maybe you can't ever do that um, because maybe if you really know yourself or you really know another person, that's accepting a lot of darkness about them and so i think with the wife there's that but i think when it comes to misaki they definitely you know i think that i don't know if it was all the stuff was in the short story but i think i so this is how i understand it mm-hmm. all of misaki's side of the story like her own mm-hmm. personal story is Added. unique to the film that make that would yeah, make a lot of sense the original short story was just the the guy yusuke reminiscing about his wife yeah, because, yeah. of course, it was part of this collection of men without women. <laughs> so <laughs> it would make sense. And I kind of got the feeling that that sh- her story was added. So that would make a lot of sense, especially when I talk about a lot of the uh, coincidences. 
<laughs> that are happening and sort of the cosmic forces that kind of makes it seem like fate that she is his driver. Mm. Um, so, uh, but yeah, and I, I think there is something compelling about her backstory too. Um, I'm not going to give anything away, but clearly there is going to be some darkness and perhaps trauma <laughs> going on. <laughs> um, and, you know, also what leads, like in America, it's not a big deal if, you know, a young woman decides to be a driver, but there it's seen definitely it's kind of like especially in you know uh hiroshima what is her story and why is she just kind of this sort of like fading in the background sort of person yeah um so yeah I like one her. thing that i was missing and this is not to say every asian film needs this but i would have liked more food yeah but that's yeah. just me personally having um visited hiroshima and knowing their specialties, like, man, just, you know, one scene at Okonomiyaki bar or something. That be- Yeah, no, I agree. Because honestly, just any Asian film, just give me some food. I know that's a <laughs> cliche at this point. But really, especially since I haven't been able to travel that much um, in the past two years. And when I did go to Japan, I never made it to uh, Hiroshima. Mm. Um, I did like Tokyo, Kyoto. They have a building Kobe. that's just yeah. all okonomiyaki places. It's yeah. just filled with, it's just like tower Here, of okonomiyaki. Here's my thing. That's not my favorite dish. However, I would definitely try it there in case there's like something that I'm missing. Um, because of course there's going to be different types. And if that's what they're known for, I would definitely try it. But um, I, I, I guess maybe it would have been a different film if they did that because you know, when I talk about language and 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 yeah. about people trying to understand each other and meaning and whatever, the only other thing that they do sort of orally is smoking. And that fe- felt like it was a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> and there's some primo whiskey shots, which is also very, you know what it is. I think we're so, sometimes we're just so um, starved for representation. And like food is probably the easiest way, like the shorthand to represent like Asian culture. Um, but that's like not necessarily something that Asian directors feel the need to call out to a certain extent i would agree a lot with that because uh when we are asian americans we want to showcase that for other people to see right (laughs) yeah um but i do have to say i grew up with certain like asian films doing that for me Mm -hmm. uh chunking express like i mean it's a romantic Mm -hmm. comedy mainly it does have a lot of food but um but i just i remember watching this guy eat like tinned food (laughs) <laughs> yes, it's um, it's Takeshi Kaneshiro eating just yeah. a shit ton of canned pineapples. I'm either pineapples or peaches. I think it was peaches. Right, right, yeah, and um, and then of course one of my all time favorite movies is Tampopo, right? Mm. So uh, I guess I guess you you could call that an American movie, but I think it was a Japanese movie. That's it was true. Juzo Itami, and and so that had food all out the wazoo and talked about like <laughs> you know so. Um, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman is another one that I kind of like that came later, of course. Um, I guess but, food money shots just wasn't a high priority for Ryusuke Hamaguchi. But, you know, we got tons of great. I feel like theater people would really love this film. It was fascinating to me because like I am definitely not a theater person like Jess is, but I always do find the differences between that and screen acting fascinating because Every now and then you'll watch a TV show and they're like, why is this one person acting weird? And then you look up and they're like, oh, because they're from the theater. And so they act like sometimes too big because, you know, if you're in a theater, you have to act to the very back of the auditorium. Right. Um, Whereas with film, you know, you can zero in on someone's face and they can like whisper something, you know, and you got all that emotion. So uh, here they're trying to act in sort of like 
a way that creates a cohesiveness, kind of like what they do on Top Chef, <laughs> um, um, despite having different disciplines and 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 uh, approaching it from different languages. So yeah. I, I, it was fascinating to me. And also, of course, if you're talking about performance as what we do in our real lives. So like how much was the wife performing? Um, was, what was, she, was she being real? Or was she being like maybe her sh- the stories that she was telling uh, was real, and what the performance was was how she was around Yusuke. So there's a lot of that kind of layered thing going on. It was ugh, just so such a smart movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess on that note, um, is Drive My Car good pop? Uh, I think it's great pop, man. I think everyone should watch it, and most people are going to be like, "What the fuck is this?" But I think that's the point. I I to kind of like paused and think about it yeah i mean it was a very very long movie (laughs) but it didn't feel i remember i was watching and i was kind of looking at the time because i was cognizant because i watched it today before this recording and originally we were going to record um about two hours earlier so i would have like just made it at the skin of my teeth um but i kind of wish i had kind of more i should have watched this over the weekend is what i'm trying to say so i had more time to digest the film um but it's not like a parasite where it's going to like invoke your like kind of your animal instincts mm-hmm. of like like indignation against like being oppressed, right? It's more of a, huh, let me sit with like what this film is trying to tell me, what it's trying to explore. Yeah. And, and just like, let me go back and just watch these amazing scenes of like people just acting. Yeah. You Even know? the characters you're supposed to not like, there are scenes with this person who are just like, what's going on? Like, what does this even mean? <laughs> so, so yeah, I'm. Uh, it's it's just a fascinating film. Uh, I hesitate to recommend it to my mom because she definitely, like, what? Yeah, yeah. She's she's not gonna like that. <laughs> it's definitely a film for people who like film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And people who like theater, I think, will enjoy this too. Yeah, I think it's all about expectation. You need to come in expecting, like, a. <laughs> I hesitate to say the word art, right? Because that comes with a lot of connotations. Mm-hmm. But watching a film that's trying to explore something, yeah, like, just like I, I yeah, you know. I do think in in its way it is more accessible than let's say how Jess was with The Green Knight, um, <laughs> which was gorgeous looking, but also totally playing on like you know me- metaphorical levels there. Um, whereas this yeah. one definitely could just be seen as a straightforward story. It's very straightforward. And it's very human. Mm-hmm. It's a very human story. And I think it's, yeah. you know, it's touching on themes that anyone can relate to. Um, you know, you don't have to think too hard about it. Everyone has things they regret or things they think about or things they worry about, like not being able to say, right? And a, lo- a lot of this film is about things that you're too afraid to, to say or find out. Yeah about yeah and just to draw a very odd parallel to because i just watched this right before (laughs) love is blind japan (laughs) (laughs) um there is that element of storytelling this movie of course is storytelling uncle vanya storytelling but there's also the storytelling that goes on in the car while two people are not looking at each other and in certain ways the way they talk about themselves and reveal themselves lets them be maybe even more honest than if they were sitting face to face across a table. And uh, that's a little bit of what you got from Love is Blind Japan. (laughs) (laughs) It's people who are emboldened, I think, by not seeing the other person and kind of like having this disembodied voice. Um, And and you kind of, what you say is as strong as, or as weak as it can be, you know? So whatever you're saying makes a difference. Um, And that's the thing here too. It's like what you are saying could be, 
could make a huge difference or it could not, depending <laughs> if you think they're telling the truth or not. Anyway, so not to go too yeah. deep into that, but yeah, <laughs> I, I felt like it. Drive my car, a great companion piece <laughs> to Love is Blind Japan. <laughs> Watch them together, two for one. <laughs> you, you. You watch them back to back and think, <laughs> think maybe, maybe, maybe you will see this parallels too. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait to watch Love is My Japan. Say, this is just like drive my car. <laughs> I need to talk to the director and be like, by the way. <laughs> All right. Oh, well, that'll do it for our discussion of Drive My Car. It's streaming now on HBO Max. So definitely check it out. Um, and yeah, um, you know, hopefully you'll pick up a couple Oscars. But either way, it is a film that I think both Han and I think is, is worth watching. So definitely check it out. All right, Han, if people want to find out more of your thoughts, where can they go? I am on Twitter at Hanonymous. And you can find me on Twitter at Marvin Yuet. You can find our show at Good Pop Club. We are a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective. Um, you can check out our fellow Asian American hosted podcast by going to the website podcastpotluck.com. Um, we'll be back next week, hopefully, with Justin Toe to talk about the new Disney Pixar film, Turning Red, which I am very excited <laughs> to watch. I'm very excited to engage in my early aughts nostalgia. Um, Han can learn all about my generation yes. and what we had to put up with. I'm very excited to watch this very specific film about specific experiences um, that I guess certain other people aren't weren't that into online. What? Did you hear about this? Yeah, we'll talk about about it later. We'll talk about it next week. (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all next time. Bye. Hey, I'm Bill Yu, and you may know me from a blog called Angry Asian Man. And I'm Jeff Yang, author, journalist, and celebrity dad. We host a podcast called They Call Us Bruce, an unfiltered conversation about what's happening in Asian America. Each week or so, we host a discussion about some of the most vital and interesting topics in our pop culture and our community, bringing in guests who are shaping and informing this thing called Asian America from Hollywood to D.C. and beyond. Uh, we've got media, entertainment, food, family, politics, representation, the good, the bad, the WTF of it all. So check us out wherever you get your podcasts or at theycallsbruce.com. Peace. Peace.